Today we come to the last sermon in the series that we've been looking at since the beginning of January called The Desert and the Parched Land. Oh, come on, I thought it might be, oh, really? Oh, it's been so good, we've really enjoyed it, God. Dear, oh dear, right, okay. Anyway, I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed looking at some of the passages that we've looked at, and it's been, it's been challenging. It's been challenging because it's been one of these series that I really felt led to, and I've had an awful lot of people who have been, and thank you, by the way, for being so encouraging, because a lot of people have, have come to me and, and said, I've really needed to hear this. I've got a lot out of it. I've, I've, really, um, I've really felt God's spoken to me through these passages, through revisiting some of these words. And that's, that's really, it's encouraging to me personally, but as a church as well, it's encouraging um, for all of us to know that God is, is using, um, using these, these, these mornings, this time we spend together. It's not simply a time when we, we have a good time. It's a lot more than that, a lot deeper than that. And so it's good to hear. Now, can anybody tell me where the title of this series comes from? Wow. Okay. Anybody tell me where in Isaiah? Okay. Right. It comes from Isaiah 35. And this was the, this was the scripture that, that, that came to me when I was, I was, I was spent a lot of time in prayer. When, when, when we put together a preaching series, I spent a lot of time um, uh, praying through. And this was a scripture that I kept on coming back to. And I'm just going to read the whole of Isaiah 35. It's only 10 verses. But what it does is it gives us a picture of the desert and the parched land. But it gives us, I spoke at the start of the service of of how um, only God sees the whole story of our lives. Only God knows what's going to happen tomorrow and next week and so on and so forth. And we just have to live by faith that day by day, um, the the, the pitfalls and challenges that we experience, we we have to to trust that, um, that, that, that God's with us. And that's what we're called to do. And the message of Scripture is very clear that we are called to trust in God. And sometimes those challenges and those pitfalls will be almost unbearably difficult. But we trust in God. And we trust that he will get us through them. And that as he gets us through them, so we will come closer to him. And so we will learn more and more. Isaiah 35 says this. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. 
and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will live there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. What a wonderful passage of scripture to read. What a wonderful image. And one of the reasons why this is such a wonderful image is because immediately before this, Isaiah's taken a bit of a, a, bit of a nosedive. He's been a little bit miserable. It's been all doom and gloom, as we often, um, often can find sometimes when we, when we read the prophets and we think, oh dear, that sounds a bit miserable. But it's not, because the whole point is that from our misery, God will meet us and God will walk with us and take us away to a place where the desert and the parched land becomes this wonderful oasis of life and water and streams of abundance and beauty and peace and joy and healing and everything that is good will be there. Because God is the one in control. But at the beginning of that, that passage from Isaiah... In order for, the, for that destination to be realized and fully appreciated, it's necessary. It's necessary for us to experience the desert and the parched land. I've never been in a desert, particularly. I visited one on a holiday once, but it was on a Jeep tour. We had plenty of bottles of water and things and it wasn't exactly a desert experience I've never been walking in a desert and felt thirst knowing that it cannot be quenched but sometimes experiences don't look like that I had an experience when I first came to faith and it was bizarre and I'm going to share it with you and halfway through you'll be thinking where is he going with this but, but bear with me so I was in my early 20s and I'd probably been going to church for about a year and my faith was in its fledgling phase. And I used to um, work up in London and uh, the train station in the town where I lived was about a 10-15 minute walk from my house. And so every morning and evening I had this 10-15 minute walk. And I decided that it would be a good time to be praying. I like walking and praying and praying and walking. It's, um, as, as you've probably realised, when, when my legs are moving, so everything else seems to work. When I stop, I slow down, um, which is why I spend half the time walking around when, uh, when I'm preaching. But I was, I was walking home one evening after a day at work, and I was going through this nice park that we used to live near, um, and I was walking along, and there was a few trees, and there was a lot of open space where you play football and cricket and stuff like that. And I was walking along, and there was a mum with a double buggy and two children who were... Uh, there's two children in the buggy, and there was two other, two other boys. And they were looking up into a tree. And as I walked past, I noticed that there was this shoe hanging in the tree. And it wasn't too far up, but it was just out of reach of, of the people there. And... This lady said to me, excuse me, um, would you mind getting my son's shoe down from the tree? And I said, yeah, sure, okay. So I just sort of jumped up and grabbed it and, and said, there you go. I said, where did he get his shoe up there? And she said, well, you see up there, 
that's his football. And he was trying to use his shoe. It's, it's man logic, isn't it? Um, use his shoe to get the ball down. Um, and she said, it's his birthday today. He's just got a new football, and it's stuck up there. And I don't know, we're not going to be able to get it down. And, and the kid was, he was, he was, he was beyond... Um, despair. He was absolutely mortified that his brand new football, and it was a nice ball, I could see it up there, and I was in my early 20s, and you know, I still thought, okay, fair enough, I can do this, I can save the day, no problem. So I said, look, I can get that down. She said, oh, it's very high. I said, yeah, <clears throat> don't worry, leave this to me. <laughs> so I sort of hung my bag up in the tree, and I started climbing, and I climbed and climbed and climbed, and I got up there, by this tree trunk, and I was sort of shaking the tree. It didn't quite work, so I had to move out a little bit, and the, the branches get less and less secure, don't they? And eventually, I'm wobbling and wobbling and wobbling, and this, tr this ball eventually jumps down, dum dum dum, falls out the tree. Brilliant! And I hear this kid shout, thanks, mate! In Essex. And um, off they go, playing football, and the mum suddenly trying to chase these kids. Oh, thank you so much, she says, as she's pushing the buggy off. They disappear, and I'm left up in this tree. And it's a lot easier to climb up a tree than it is to climb down a tree. Um, unless you just let gravity do its job, and I didn't want to do that. So I'm standing there in this tree, and I'm sort of gingerly edging my way across, and I suddenly become aware that there's this elderly lady walking a dog, and she's coming along the path, and there, is no, there are no children anywhere, there's no mum with a buggy, there's, all there is is a bloke in a, up in a tree, in a suit, collar and tie, with his, with his bag hanging up, just standing, and I thought, this is, this is ridiculous, this looks absolutely bizarre, this is ridiculous. And so I just thought, right, if I just stay still, just let her walk past, and then when she's gone, I can then make my way down. So I just stood there, and I tried to make myself sort of as small as possible. I'm just standing there in this tree. And I can see this lady walking past, and she starts over there, and she's walking and walking and walking. And it was all going really well, and I thought, I'm oh, going to get away with this. This is great. And then what happened was there was this squirrel. <laughs> and so I'm standing there, and the, tree, the next tree along, my, my neighbouring tree, suddenly this squirrel starts making its way down the trunk. And this lady's dog, a little terrier thing it was, suddenly looks and sees a squirrel, running up to it, and this squirrel bolts up the tree, comes across, looks at me as if to say, what? <laughs> and then turns back and goes higher up and takes, takes refuge in a tree. But of course, what that does is the, 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 the elderly lady walking along, who'd been on a nice, normal dog walk, nothing, nothing untoward happening, she suddenly looks at the, sees the squirrel, and then her gaze just sort of... And I'm just, <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> and she just stared at me. And she just stopped and stared. She didn't say anything. I think she was terrified. I, I, I don't know what was going through her mind, but she just stared. And so I just, I just sort of thought, oh, I've got to do this. So I just sort of started moving along and eventually managed to work my way down and got, and I was very undignified and in a tangle of limbs and, and suit and bag and everything, I eventually descended quicker than I'd wanted to out of the tree, landed on the ground, and this woman was just staring at me. And I, I sort of said, oh, there, there was a football and uh, two kids, and, and I just thought, this is not getting me anywhere. So I just, feeling very, very, very silly, I walked away and made my way home. Now, this is the point you're probably thinking, okay, it's all very funny, but where are you going with this? Well, where I'm going with this is I felt really humiliated, I felt really stupid, and, and I, was, I, was, I had the green off the bark on my suit, and I was, the shoes were all scuffed, and I thought, well, that was a stupid thing to do, but no, these things happen. A few years later, I told this story in a sermon, 
And afterwards, a lady came up to me and she said, it's amazing how God uses us, isn't it? And I said, yes, yeah, thinking, what's she talking about? She said, a couple of years ago, in my um, Bible study group, there was only three or four of us, and a new lady came along. She'd been invited by somebody, and it was quite awkward because she knew nothing about faith. And we were talking about scripture, and she just didn't really agree with anything, and she was being quite difficult. And she said it was, it was a real frosty sort of atmosphere. Um, and then we were talking about bizarre things that happen in the Bible. And she said, I can't relate to that, but I did have once this ridiculous thing happen. I was walking my dog, <laughs> and she told the story. And the other three ladies in the, in the Bible study were just beside themselves, laughing at this, this ridiculous image of a man in a suit stuck up a tree and, and trying to, half falling, half climbing, and just how ridiculous, what a, what a crazy thing to happen. And when this, this story was shared with me on a Sunday morning, it turned out that that was the icebreaker in that group. That was the story that kind of, it, it, it broke down, it, it melted the frostiness, it broke down the barriers, and suddenly they talked about it and explored different explanations of, of how this idiot could have been up in the tree and what was going on and, and how these bizarre things happen. And it just started to gel the group. And that was the beginning of that lady's path to faith. Now, it would be, I would be going too far to say that God put me up in that tree for that purpose. It might be the case. But what I would say is that the humiliation that I felt, I was quite proud sort of doing the manly thing, climbing up into a tree, getting a ball down. The humiliation I felt, I felt so stupid and I must have been glowing red and I was filthy and it wasn't a clever thing to do. But God uses us in our moments of weakness, in our moments of stupidity, in our moments of, of helplessness, in the moments where we make a mistake or make a, take a wrong turn in life, make a stupid decision. God uses us all the time. And as we've gone through this series, we have seen people who... Now, okay, my example is, is, is trivial and light-hearted, but we've seen some pretty serious pe uh, uh, times where people have been in a desert, in a parched land. People have been desperate desperately short of food, desperately short of, of, of water, desperately short of, of money. They've had debts to pay. We've seen people who have left their home land and gone out into a complete unknown wilderness because they've been so desperate. Their situation has been so hard. But every single time that we've seen people in the desert and the parched land, we have seen the way that God has reached out, helped them through it, provided for them, and brought them to a place that we see in Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. It will. It might not be right now. It might not be where we are right now as we go through the hardships of life, and we might not ever be able to see a future, a happiness again. We might think, how would I ever find joy again? But if we're faithful to God, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. 
There will be this, this new life. There will be this new future. There will be this abundance that God will give us. This isn't prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that he'll, he'll provide more than we can possibly imagine, although he can. But God will help us through. And through the difficulties that we face, God will use that. He will bless that. He will honor that. You see, Jesus... Jesus knew exactly what it was like to go through the desert and the parched land. Straight after he was baptized, immediately after he's had that incredible moment where he's, he's, he's gone down into the water, he's come up, the skies have opened, the Spirit of God has de descended on him like a dove and he's heard the audible voice saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. When all that wonderful moment has just happened, you'd think that from then on it was going to be onwards and upwards and great power and glory and it's going to be wonderful. But actually what's the first thing that happens? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You see, Jesus had to go through this process in order for us to be able to call him Lord, in order to, to call him um, uh, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, in order to say he was fully God yet fully man. Jesus had to have experienced what it's like to be desperate, what it's like to be vulnerable, what it's like to be at the mercy of Satan. For 40 days he fasted, 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If. It's an interesting word, isn't it? If. If this is true, suggests that there's a possibility it's not. If this happens, suggests there's a possibility that it won't. If you are the son of God, suggests there's a possibility that he wasn't. Jesus is tempted. At a time of, of intense hunger, 40 days and 40 nights, and we don't know quite how far into this but it, it was, but it seems that it was towards the end, 40 days and 40 nights. If you are the son of God... Turn one of those stones into bread. Come on, you're starving. You can do it. Do it yourself. DIY. We might think, well, where's the harm in that? What harm can it do just to turn this stone into bread? What harm can it do to take the, the last tenner and go into the bookmaker's? What harm can it do to just have one more drink? What harm can it do to do this one little thing? But Jesus says, no, there's got to be a line. Because it can do harm. All of our actions have the potential to honour God or not. And if they don't honour God, then they do harm. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus focuses on the word of God. His devotion to God isn't, isn't shaken by temptation. He refuses. Now, don't for one minute think that this was a sort of a clever little one-liner that Jesus pulled out of his back pocket. <laughs> Come on, Satan. 
It's not like that at all. Jesus was desperate. He would have been a gaunt figure of a man. He would have been wasting away. He would have been to the point almost of death, starving. At our most vulnerable point, temptation is the, at, its, at its most powerful. It's at its hardest to resist. But as with all of his life, Jesus sets us an example. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If, that word again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan uses scripture. Even Satan can quote scripture. Jesus answered, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Lord, take me out of this desert and I will, I promise, I'll always, I'll never. We don't try and make a deal with God. We don't bargain with God because God already knows the full picture. He knows that whatever promise we might make in our moment of desperation, nine times out of ten, we're not going to keep it. For most of us, ten times out of ten, we're not going to keep it. And so we shouldn't try and, and bargain with God. Instead, we are called to be patient. We are called to endure. Again, the, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. You can have whatever you like. You can have the lot. You bow down and worship me. You pack away God. You turn away from him. You make me your focus. You give me everything. I always remember when I... Um, the second job I ever had, it was, um, I'd been there for six months and I had an appraisal. And uh, it was an American uh, broker and they, they had these forms and um, it, was, um, it was all very American because it's all about putting the company first. And there were these questions, I can't remember what they were now, but one of them stuck in my mind. Um, I was sitting down with my, my boss and um, he said, okay, Tom, it's, you know, if everything's good, we're happy with you, it's all, it's all fine, tick, 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 yep. And there were these statements and these statements had a score of one to five, one being totally disagree, five being totally agree. Um, and one of these statements said, I always put the company first. And before I said a word, my boss circled one. Totally disagree. And I said, um, shouldn't, shouldn't that be the other end? I think you've done the wrong one. He said, no, I haven't. He said, no one who works for me puts the company first. You put your family first. You put your, your own health first. You put your friendships first. And he listed all these things that you put first. He said, you don't put the company first, Tom. None of us put the company first. And I, I respected that so much. A few weeks later, I found out he was a Christian. You see, when I shared that with some of, some of the um, other people I got to know in other teams, they said, oh, no, I'll put five. Oh, yeah, yeah, you always put five for that. Were you, you mad? But no, I worked for someone who, who saw beyond that, who saw through that, who didn't want to see someone say, yeah, yeah, I'll put the company first. Instead, saying, no, 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 you've got something more important. You must have something more important than the company you work for. 
when Jesus is called to put a five, circle a five on his appraisal form with Satan, he says, get away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That was Jesus' response when he was weak, when he was vulnerable, when he was starving, when he was desperate. He still devoted himself to God. Of course, later on, Jesus was tempted again. Now, we don't talk about this temptation as a temptation because the Bible doesn't present it as a temptation. But if you look closely enough, it's there. You see, we see Jesus in the, in the desert, starving, vulnerable, desperate. But perhaps we see him even more desperate, in an even worse state. In Matthew 27, as Jesus hung on the cross, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of all Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Well, let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And so we see Jesus there. And for me, that, that's maybe the greatest of the temptations. He's nailed to the cross. Death is moments away. He's been wounded. He's been beaten. He's in this awful state. He's feeling the pain. He's feeling life ebbing out of his body. And he had the choice. He could have got himself down. He could have called on divine power. Or he could have performed a miracle of some sort. Jesus could have got himself off the cross. But he resisted temptation again. The temptation's there. If you're the son of God, prove it. Prove it. Get off the cross. There's no place for a, a king, for God. Come on, where's dad now? He has this mockery, this intense mockery, and this constant reminder, if you are the son of God, get yourself down. Save yourself. He could have got himself down, and he could have maybe... Spent another 30 or 40 years performing miracles, healing people, feeding people. Maybe he could have led a rebel movement against the Roman Empire. But instead he did something so much more important than that. You see, all those things are short term. History might have recorded him as an impressive leader, but no more than that. But instead, Jesus chose to ignore that temptation... He resisted that temptation. He stayed on that cross until eventually he gave up his spirit. He died on that cross. Not because he didn't have a choice, but because he did have a choice. And he chose to remain there. 
And so powerful was that moment, so powerful was that image, the work that was, was to be done, that that power is still felt today across the world. But that power was also felt on that day. Matthew 27, verse 54, when a centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely, surely, he was the son of God. When we say surely, then we're saying certainly, absolutely, totally, certainly. There's no, no question. Surely he was the son of God. That was the Roman centurion guarding Jesus. That was his words. And of course, Jesus' words just before he died. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus was on that cross. Jesus was in that desert. The desert and the parched land were no stranger to Jesus. They couldn't be a stranger to Jesus. Jesus had to know what it was like to suffer. He had to know what it was like to go through those moments of abject humiliation and pain and desperation and vulnerability. He had to know what it was like to, to, to want something and, and know that there was a way that he could get it, but know that that was the wrong way. He had to be tempted and he had to resist the temptation. And so that's why when we worship him, we can say he was fully God. He was fully man. We can say he was the perfect example for us to follow because never did he succumb to temptation. Never did he allow Satan's tongue to, to pull him over, to do what was wrong, to satisfy the short-term desire. Instead, he knew that he had to live a life that would set an example for generation after generation to come that said, stick with it, stay with God, keep the faith, keep going. You might be in a desert and a parched land right now, but one day the desert and a parched land will be glad. There will be crocuses bursting forth. There will be blossom. There will be desert sands turned into pools. There will be streams running through. There will be this new life. Jesus was no stranger to Isaiah 35. Indeed, he almost quotes Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. When some of John the Baptist's servants came to ask Jesus whether he was the Messiah or whether they should be expecting someone else, we're told at that very time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So Jesus replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus was carrying out the works that have been prophesied in Isaiah 34, uh, 35. He's prophesying that. And we see evidence of this around us. We see these good works happening. 
They might not be happening in, in the abundance and with the regularity that we'd like to see, but hope is there. I got home yesterday after having been out for um, a walk in some uh, beautiful snowdrop-laden woodland. And as we were walking along, there was, there was thousands of snowdrops and everything looked white and it was amazing. But there were also these crocuses that were coming through and they were purple with yellow centers. They were beautiful, lovely. I'm not really a flower person, but I've got to say, you know, you couldn't help but stop and have a look. They were amazing. And then I came home and I was reading through this passage last night and I read those words... Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. After a cold, miserable, muddy, dark winter, you suddenly see this thing that just makes you stop. And in all the woodland, there can be one little crocus that can be open. And you can stop, and that is the thing that you remember. That is the thing that you take home. That is the thing that gives you hope for the rest of the day, that this tiny little delicate new life has forced its way up through the soil, burst, burst out, and is now saying to the world, hey... I'm, I'm here. I'm still going. What about the rest of you? Come on, chaps, out you come. And we know that in the weeks to come, as the warmer weather comes, we will see more and more of this happening. Because right at the beginning of this series, we looked at, we looked at Genesis, and we saw the way that God can create out of nothing. We saw the way that he takes a situation that was laden with just chaos. There was everything and nothing all in one go, and God creates, and he brings order. And he suddenly says, this is a total mess, so let this happen. Um, don't let that happen yet. Uh, right, now's the time for this bit. Don't, no, no, hold that, hold that, hold that. Okay, good, right, that's that. No, next bit, and next bit, and next bit. Hey, this is good. This is good. This is order. This is created. This, is, this has got the hand of an intelligent creator on it. No one can look at the world and say this is just by chance. It takes a lot more faith to believe that there isn't a creator than it does to believe that there is one. So we looked at creation. We then looked at Ruth. We looked at the, the, the desperate famine that Ruth and her family were, were experiencing and the way they felt they had no choice but to leave the community of God's people and to go to Moab and to seek refuge there. And then we saw that one by one, the, the breadwinners in the family died off, and eventually, Ruth decides she's got a choice. She can either go with her, her mother-in-law back. She can follow her back to Judah, or she can stay with her own people. And we have that wonderful moment where Naomi, her mother-in-law, says, you go, go back to your people. I'll, I'll go and hope my own people take me back. And Ruth says, no. Where you go, I go. Where you, your people will be my people. Your, pe your God will be my God. This wonderful moment of devotion, which is born out of a whole life that Naomi lived of demonstrating her faith in her God. And Ruth saw, and Ruth wanted to be part of that. Then we moved on to Elijah. And we saw the, the way that God was working at the very high level of political intrigue, but also in the, the in, into, inter, intimate detail of the lady who was preparing the last meal for her and her son and said, we're going to eat this and then we're going to die. In our most desperate moment, God puts Elijah into her path and provides and strengthens and brings them through. And then for the past couple of weeks, we've looked at 2 Kings chapter 5. 
We saw Naaman. And we saw the way that Naaman responded to the servant girl who probably felt she was doing something ridiculous, something stupid, something foolish even, by offering the healing power of God to the commander of her, her enemy's army. And we saw the way that Naaman reacted. He went with it. Why not? What's to lose? And eventually, after, <laughs> after a bit of a hissy fit, he dunks himself seven times in the Jordan and comes out and his skin is cleansed. And he says, I now know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And he takes bags of soil from Israel to take back to his own country so that he can worship on hallowed ground. And then finally, last week, we looked at Gehazi. And we saw how he was trapped in the, the desert and the parched land of, of, of want. Suddenly, this, this massive wealth had been offered to his master as a, as a payment for the healing that had taken place. And Elisha had said, no, I'm not accepting anything. Because Elisha wanted God to have all the glory. He knew that if he, if he didn't take anything, then the only, thing that, the only option open to Naaman was to give thanks to God. That's the only thing he could give as a repayment for what had happened, is to give thanks to God. But Gehazi went running after. And he took payment. And he was punished for that. Because by taking payment, he was taking the glory for himself rather than giving it to God. And so we've seen these, these stories, and there are many others where we, can, we could have carried on the series for another, another year, because the Bible is so full of stories where we see people going through hardship and through turmoil and through difficulty, and we see the way that God joins them and that God offers them a path, and if they choose to follow it, then God takes them out of the desert and the parched land. But if they don't choose to follow it, then we're left on our own. We're flying solo. God doesn't force us to do something that we don't want to do. God didn't force Jesus to, to, to face Satan in the desert. God didn't force Jesus onto the cross. He didn't force Jesus to stay there. But God knew, Jesus knew that God had a better plan in place, and he trusted him. And so whatever we're going through in our lives at the moment, whatever we're struggling with and battling with, Keep praying. Keep asking God to walk that path with you. Whatever desert or parched land you find yourself in, no matter how desperate you feel right now, my belief, and I hope your belief as well, is that God is with you. God is walking that path. And that he will eventually, and it might not be immediately, it might not be for a long time, but God knows what you can endure and God will be using you as, mate, as an example to others. People will be looking at you and seeing the way you conduct yourselves. And God will eventually take you out of that desert. Isaiah 35 verse 8. And a highway will be there. A highway isn't a lonely, empty path. A highway is a clear, clearly marked route. It will be called the way of holiness. This is the, the route that God has got marked for you. It will be for those who walk on that way. It will be holy. The unclean won't journey it. Wicked fools won't go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. Whatever, whatever ravenous beast might be eating you up at the moment, or, or you might be wrestling with and struggling with, it will not be there. 
God will one day remove that from your life. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's been said many times that when we're on a journey, it's not so much about the destination, it's about how we get there. Well, of course, that can be said about the Christian journey, but when we get there, we'll look back, and I'm pretty sure it will be about where we get to. Because where we get to will be so beautiful, so sweet, so free of pain and suffering, so full of joy. There will be such an outpouring of God's glory that that destination will be more amazing than we can possibly imagine. And that's what we must set our eyes on. To remember that because of what Jesus did on that cross, to remember that because of his willingness to stay on that cross, he has opened up that highway for us. We can walk on that highway and we can follow him every step of the way. And that destination, it sounds pretty good. I think we should pray. Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you that you sent Jesus into this world to show us how you want us to live our lives. We thank you that through his example we can see that there is a better way. We can see that there is a path that you have set before us. And although for so many of us we, we drift away from that path, Lord, we know that there is always a way back. Sometimes that will involve a journey through a desert and a parched land. But we know, we know that that is not the only path that you've set before us. We know that that is not the way it's always going to be. Father God, we thank you for this passage from Isaiah. We thank you for all of the, the stories that we have looked at, these real-life examples of the way that you work in the world around us, the way that you have worked from the beginning of time. Father God, we thank you that you can always take us where we are, Meet with us, join with us, walk with us, and lead us back onto the right track. We thank you, Lord, that your word makes no secret of the fact that there will be hard times, that there will be difficulties and challenges ahead. But Lord, we thank you for that, that glimpse offered in Isaiah 35. That glimpse of the final destination that we will arrive at the beauty and the wonder that awaits us. And so, Father, we pray that as we, as we come to the end of this series, Lord, we pray that you will keep those, those lessons fresh in our mind, that reminder of the journey that we're on, of the destination that awaits us, and of the one who walks with us all the way there. 
So Father, hold us close when we're feeling vulnerable, when we're feeling desperate, when we're feeling empty or distant. Father, please, hold us close. Be with us and help us to be the people you want us to be, to be the example you want us to be to those around us. And help us one day to meet with you in the most amazing and powerful way. Lord God bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and lead us in our final song today.